1975, Jaws was released. It is routinely regarded as one of the greatest films of all time and is generally credited with creating the concept of the summer blockbuster. In 1978, in an obvious cash grab, Jaws 2 was released, failing to have lightning strike a second time, but presenting a generally enjoyable film. In 1983, Jaws 3D was released, shamelessly attempting to take advantage of a gullible audience. By 1987, there was no pretense of quality as Lorraine Gary and Michael Caine cashed paychecks for sleepwalking through a pointless and incredulous sequel. In 2016, Paul Spatero created Is It Jaws, in which he and a group of rotating guest hosts discuss new and old movies and place them up against the Jaws scale, which ignores some elements of the actual films and sets forth a rating scale. Jaws, an all-time great classic film. Jaws 2, an enjoyable film with some flaws but worthy of multiple viewings. Jaws 3, a moderately enjoyable film. And finally, Jaws 4, a bad movie. Please join Paul and his guests as they ask the ever-important question, Is it Jaws? in London and an attempt may be made on his life. My department must protect him. Now, will you tell me what was on that piece of paper? I'm sorry, I'm afraid I can't. But I can tell you what's written on another piece of paper. That our child had been kidnapped. And if we spoke, we'd never sail again. You know, to a man with a heart as soft as mine, there's nothing sweeter than a touching scene. Such as? Such as a father saying goodbye to his child. <laughs> yeah, goodbye for the last time. What could be more touching than that?
ladies and gentlemen, the famous Miss Doris Day has gladly consented to sing a few songs for us tonight. Que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be. The future's not ours to see. Que sera, sera. You're right, that was a gunshot you heard. That was the signal that brought all the trouble out of the open. It's a scene from our new picture, The Man Who Knew Too Much. As you know, Alfred Hitchcock has an uncanny knack for coming up with the unusual in entertainment, while The Man Who Knew Too Much can certainly be put in that category. I play the part of an American doctor, Doris Day is my wife, and the story is about our trip abroad that started out as a holiday and ended up as a nightmare. And to film it, Hitchcock took us thousands of miles away from Hollywood to Marrakesh, which is right in the center of the North African trouble area. And that was just the beginning. From there, we flew to London for backgrounds of a whole strange series of events that ended up that final night in the great concert hall, where the cue for murder was one single crash of the cymbals. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Is It Yours? I'm Paul Spitaro, and I am here with Mr. Sean Whalen. Hello, Sean. Pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to, to have you here. And we are joined by the gentleman from 99 Years 100 Films, Mr. Blaine Dowler and Mr. Trey Hooks. Hey, guys. Hey. Hello. Now, we have kind of fallen into becoming a uh, an Alfred Hitchcock panel because the last time we spoke we decided we were going to do an Alfred Hitchcock movie and then over the course of I guess it's been a couple of months uh, all of a sudden we decided you know what let's make this a fairly regular thing and, and do a lot of Hitchcock movies and I gotta tell you I'm pretty stoked with the idea when I was in high school I took my first film appreciation class and the focus of that of that class, although there were a couple of other things that were covered, were Hitchcock and Orson Welles. Those were the two things that that the teacher really gave focus on, and it gave me a much greater appreciation, even for some movies I had already seen by that age, and it made me want to see more Hitchcock movies. And I have to tell you, I am. I'm I'm lacking in that regard. I've seen most of the big name Hitchcock movies and I've seen some of the more obscure ones, but you know, as we were talking about, you know, Hitchcock has a huge filmography and if I've seen if I've seen a quarter of it, you know, that would be a lot. So there's a lot to go and uh we'll see what, you know, how much we can cover. I'm sure some of it's going to be just a little, little too 
uh, out there or old or whatever for us to cover. We're not going to, I don't think we're going to get through every Hitchcock movie, but, you know, we'll try and hit all the big ones and some of the lesser known possibly should be better known movies. Uh, and today we are doing a double header uh, because we're going to do the original Man Who Knew Too Much from 1934, I believe. And then the, uh, I, I, you know, I'm hesitant to say remake, although I see it totally as a remake. A lot of places talk about the plot differences and describe it as almost a different movie. I disagree. And if that's, if either of you, if, if any of you think that it, uh, that it is a really totally different movie, I would love to hear the basis for it and, and kind of work with that a little bit. But the 1956 remake, uh, starring Jimmy Stewart and Doris Day, which has been one of my favorites for a long time. Uh, I thought I had seen the original quite some time ago, but now I'm questioning my own memory. I watched it recently on uh, HBO Plus, and although the story beats are familiar because of the remake, I didn't really remember actually seeing it. So that, you know, that one I'm a little bit more vague on but the 56 version i've probably seen about half a dozen times and that is one of my favorite hitchcock movies so why don't we go around the horn and see what everybody's experience with these two movies is if you know first time out or you know beloved favorite so i'm gonna i'm gonna go clockwise by my screen so trey you'd be next on the list all right um I saw both of these films for the first time, I would say, within the past three or four years. Um, <clears throat> I, I, I like to say I have similar inclinations to um, our a mutual friend of a lot of ours, John Wilson. I like to watch things chronologically and see how um, things have kind of changed o- over time. So I started um, uh, going through a letterbox list of recommended films. So um i saw the 1934 version um first and that was maybe about two and a half years ago and within the past year i first watched the 1956 version all right how about you sean so like you my my exposure to hitchcock was from a high school film class i had seen uh, north by northwest rear window the birds you know those those films from that and just really grew to love his style. These films, both of them were, this is my first viewing, um, which I'm trying to make my way through all of Hitchcock's films. And it it was a pleasant surprise. I thought I had seen the 56 version before like you, but I had not. So it was really interesting to see a film that was done as a remake like this, especially with what I read about um, the screenwriting for the second version, that the plot details came from Hitchcock, but the screenwriter had not seen the early version or read its script, which is interesting how um, what story beats parallel. Now, we'll, I'm sure we'll be talking about it through this conversation and which ones were were different and just get our thoughts on it. But um, this was this was a pleasure to view both of these this way. And I think there's a lot to talk about between these two films with their uh, similarities and differences. All right. What, what do you say, Blaine? I think you of, of our group, I think you are the biggest film historian. Uh, so I'm, I'm very curious to hear your experience. Uh, it depends a little bit on the era. There's there's definitely some decades where where Trey's knowledge is deeper than mine, as we've discovered going through our podcast. But um, I actually first saw Hitchcock in a university film appreciation class, 
and he is easily one of my top three directors. So I've been trying to work through his stuff. Again, preference for the oldest material, but also impatient. So if I find something more recent before I find something older, I've been watching the more recent first. So of his 55 surviving films, I've now seen 44 of them. Uh, looking at the letterbox list I have, if I sort it by general popularity, the most popular of the films I haven't seen yet is Frenzy. So that should give you some context there. Uh, I, saw Frenzy, I saw Frenzy in the same film class that I talked about earlier in high school. So I'm <laughs> on top of that one. All right. Yeah. So, yeah, I I saw these. I think I saw them, the 1934 version the first time, probably about 15 years ago. And, you know, the 1956 version, more like 10. And I've seen them a couple of times each now. Um, so enjoy both, but not really at the top of my Hitchcock list. So I haven't revisited as often as some other movies. I will, well, I'll name Psycho because you've already done that episode, but I'll leave the others off for future episodes to discuss in context. So now this was one of the movies, unless my memory is false, and I don't think it is, but I've already had false memories on seeing the original version, so who knows. Uh, but this was one of the movies that in the mid-1980s or so uh, had been re-released on video and on the big screen because there had been some sort of contractual issue with them. Uh, there was Rear Window, there was Vertigo, there was this, uh, there was uh, Rope. Uh, also, I, I think no family plot was not among them, uh, but there were others. I can't recall off the top of my head. And when that happened, I, you know, I certainly had my Hitchcock appreciation going and I know I saw rear window in a movie theater. Uh, I'm not certain about this one. I think I ended up seeing this on a VHS tape when it first came out, but there was kind of a, a, a rush to see some of these movies because they were all new as far as I was concerned because they had been tied up in some sort of contractual problems. Uh, and it, it's hard to take a 1956 movie and try and say, oh, you know, it's, it's, it's more modern. Uh, but when, you know, now looking at the original and then seeing it in comparison, the, the, the remake is so much more slick in, in, in its own presentation. And uh, I'm going to probably steal a little of your thunder because I know you read the book, but I did see a quote from uh, Hitchcock where he talked about how the first movie was made by a talented amateur and the second one was made by a professional, something along those lines. And that's kind of what I came away with. And I didn't read that quote until after I saw the first one you know, recently, but that's kind of what I walked away with the, the two films. And, and it's shocking to me uh, what Sean just said about the screenwriter, not actually seeing the original or, or reading the script because it is so similar in its beats. I mean, you, you have the same storyline with the, uh, you know, the, the attempted assassination at the, at the concert and the unwitting family that comes in and see, you know, gets some information that they shouldn't have. The child is kidnapped and they have to figure out what's going on. I mean, the story beats are very, very similar. Uh, and a lot of the limitations of the 1934 movie, in my opinion, are more based upon the technology of the time and some of the filmmaking styles of the time. They didn't feel the need back then, uh, 
you know, I was going to say it's it's some of the the show me don't tell me, but that that's not actually the reality. Uh, they didn't feel the need to give you the same information to spoon feed you as much information. They would just kind of move it along and assume that you'd fill in gaps with your imagination as far as the storylines went, so they could move it along much quicker. This the the original movie is I believe somewhere around the seventy minute mark, maybe seventy five, and the and the remake is two hours. So, you know, that difference in time is, it can make a huge difference as far as how much you show. Uh, so the second one is, in my opinion, a more elegant movie. It's 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 more uh, bringing you along with the story. And it's got a lot of the, you know, the Hitchcock trademark things as far as the suspense goes and everything. Certainly the uh, ordinary man put into an extraordinary circumstance uh, trademark of Hitchcock's. But, uh, you know, again, the stories are, in my mind, very, very similar. I didn't I, I, I didn't really distinguish much, you know, as far as, you know, what I took away from it as far as the family and all of that stuff. Uh, so I kind of wish I had seen the 1934 version first because of the difference in filmmaking styles. I think I would have appreciated it more if I hadn't already seen the slicker version. Uh, you know, it, it, it's it's like seeing somebody's college movie and then seeing the version they made of it when they were professional almost. Uh, and I, I don't know if we're going to do too, a heck of a lot as far as giving reviews of each individual one. And I'm going to kind of leave that to you guys and, and to take it where you want to take it as far as that goes. But that's that's my original thoughts on the, on the two of them. And I'm curious, you know, how everybody else, what everybody else took away. It's funny you said that, Paul, because I think I had the opposite reaction. And maybe it's like, <clears throat> you know, you can hear a cover of a song before you hear the original, and that's the one you imprint on because that's your first. Um, you know, I'll save my rankings for later, but I, I think I actually preferred the 1934 to the 1956. And maybe it's because I um, saw it first, but I, I liked the parallel structure with um, uh, the skeet shooting event at the beginning and how that kind of set up how Jill would have to thwart the assassination at the end in, in a similar manner. Um, and I just think there's something about the black and white that made this kind of um, a darker, more intense film for me than the color um, 1956 version. I think the focus, and it's definitely more focused in the 34 version on the villain a little bit. You know, Peter Lorre mm -hmm. takes much more center stage in the original uh, than any of the villains do in the remake. And I think that created a much darker tone to it as well. So I agree with what you're saying there. While I do appreciate the remake more, I can see exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, I'd say the villain is one of two areas where I think the original was superior and the other one is that in a lot of stories in the 1930s, if you know, a child was kidnapped, it's going to be the husband who saves the day. And in the 1934 version, the husband spends the last 15 minutes captured. And it's the wife who saves the day. Whereas in 1956, the idea was you can't cast Jimmy Stewart and then put him in a cage for the last chunk of the movie. So he was, you know, he was out and much more involved. But you know, at the same time, that meant Doris Day was less actively involved in the resolution. She got the same. 
Yeah. <laughs> Not only Radiant did she get to sing, she got to sing Kesara Sara. So, you know, that was if you if I, I don't know if anybody else is old enough to remember, but she had her own sitcom at one time, and that was the theme song to her sitcom. Because of this, she almost didn't want to record it. She thought it was a silly children's song, but it hit huge because of this movie. So it was in it was it, I think it was featured in another film as well, if I remember right. Yeah, this is the one that made people associate it with her. So and I do want to say that the the 1956 version, I'm not going to say it isn't sexist, but it's not more sexist than the average 1956 film. It's just 1934 was m- much more progressive than its contemporaries. So it felt like it lost something, but only when you have the two to compare to. I liked seeing the black and white version in the sense that I always appreciate black and white for suspense, sense of danger. Um, I think there was there was an atmosphere and a tone. The scene at the Royal Albert Hall was stunning in the way the music was building to the gradual gunshot, which I thought was just re- it really stood out for me in that version. I I think uh, Paul, you mentioned before the time difference between the two films, and I do think that's the one area where maybe the 1934 version suffers was the daughter. I didn't like mm-hmm. the daughter was kidnapped. But it was kind of like, oh, they have a daughter and she's been kidnapped. <laughs> and that was if there was one distinct difference between the two films, it was it was that piece. Whereas in the 56 version, we really knew who the kid was by the time that happens. And I think that's where the extra screen time paid off was I felt not that I didn't care about the kid. It was they have a daughter and I'm more focused on the parents who are now trying to rescue their daughter then I got to see the son and daughter dancing around in the second version. To, to technical limitations, what was interesting is I really appreciate the cinematography in the 56 version, but it is that era too where there's a lot of scenes where your foreground characters appear that they're in a different spot than the film that's running behind them. Or, yeah, and, there's, and, there's definitely some uh, back, uh, yeah, a lot of rear projection. Yeah, exactly. I couldn't think of a word. Thank you, Blaine. Uh, and, and when, when they're when they're in the, the car and everything, and there's a lot of Doris Day scenes with the rear projection. And I I appreciate what they were doing. That's not a knock on the film or anything like that. It's just a, it's a sign of that particular era. Whereas in the black and white version, just because I was never taken out of the atmosphere that I was in. Um, there was some story development, though. If there's one thing I would say that was different for the 1934 version for me, it's like I wouldn't have minded that one being a little bit longer, just in fleshing things out a little bit more. But um, the at- atmosphere was really sweet in that 1934 version. Okay, should we go into a little bit about why the two versions exist and the source material, and like Sean said, why the second screenwriter was not as familiar with the first? Sure. Uh, so this actually started. Even though it's called The Man Who Knew Too Much, which is the title of a G.K. Chesterton collection of short stories, it's got nothing to do with the contents. And that The Man Who Knew Too Much is more a Columbo-style detective, except instead of Columbo, where he nails the guy, he says, yeah, but this person's so rich and powerful, I'm never going to nail him, so we didn't even try to arrest them. But he, he solves the cases and then just goes nowhere because he figures, yeah, that person's untouchable. The plot itself was actually a Bulldog Drummond story. So it was made, the first one was made in Europe. It was adapted to this. And when he was doing the remake, it's because he wanted, or Hitchcock wanted to move from one film studio to another. And he was never completely satisfied with the way the 1934 version came together. 
So we had a new writing partner who we trusted and said, okay, I've got to fill one more movie from this first contract before going to the next one, but I'm excited by projects that the next studio has already approved. We need to rush something out. I made a movie that I wasn't totally happy with. Have you seen The Man Who Knew Too Much or read the book? And the screenwriting partner said, no. Hitchcock said, perfect, <laughs> and gave him a description of an outline where, you know, the, so the parents are on vacation, their child gets kidnapped, you know, their child's actually hidden in a church, the assassination is timed in the Royal Albert Hall. So the key points, which is probably like a five minute conversation when you think about what they have to have in common. And then he let that screenwriter do his own thing. So that's that's where I'd say it is more of a remake, because having read the G.K. Chesterton collection. That's not the story that was being told. And the other guy had not read the Bulldog Drummond, so it had all these commonalities had to come from Hitchcock because there's no other way to connect the two. So I would agree it is a remake of that film, but that's where it came out. He was trying to close out with one studio and move on to the next. Um, and just another comment, Paul, you were remembering correctly that this was one of the five movies that were vaulted. The contractual issues were that Hitchcock bought back the rights to them to give Patricia as a gift. So when his daughter was older, he said, no, there will be value in this when you need money, then release them to the public and you'll rake it in hand over fist, which is pretty much what I'm happened. I'm pretty sure she did. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, it was kind of, you know, it was kind of an event when they uh, were released at the time. And uh, I, I know, you know, it was certainly an event for film geeks. I don't know if it was the world at large, but, you know, the people who who kind of, you know, I, had an interest in seeing all this stuff, you know, it was very exciting. I, I, I remember my dad being excited when they were um, uh, when they were released. Um, you, you know, <clears throat> he was kind of a <clears throat> he, he was a geek from the generation between before all four of us. But, you know, he grew up with serials and the Universal Monster films, et cetera. And he was he was a big Hitchcock fan. So, yeah, when Vertigo and Rear Window were getting re-released, it was an event for him. Mm. So it was Vertigo, Rear Window, Rope, The Man Who Knew Too Much and... Oh, something about Harry. That was the other one. Or Trouble with Harry, yes. Trouble with Harry. And specifically the 1956 version of The Man Who Knew Too Much, the 1934, is one of the British films that's in the public domain. They couldn't lock that one down. So that one has always been available. Now, we were talking about the differences between the two, and we seem to be in lockstep that we all agree that the focus on Peter Lorre as a villain in the original is is superior to what we got as far as the villains in the in the sequel. Uh, or not the sequel, the remake, excuse me. Uh, one of the things that's in the remake, though, that I think I appreciate a lot more is, and, I, and it goes totally to what I said about them, just kind of you to, expecting you to just understand that these things exist. In in the 1934 version, uh, I, I don't even know what the character's name in, in the 34 version is, but the, the Louis Bernard character in the 56 version uh, in the 34 version, they're already friendly with him. They already know him. It's just kind of understood that they have a relationship with this guy uh, who they met while they're on vacation. In the 56 version, we take the time to actually uh, see the the original meeting between the two. And they use that for a fair amount of exposition in the movie as well. But you start to get to know who this character is a little bit. And then, you you know, you develop. And there's some stuff in there that I just feel like. I don't mean it to be sexist because I don't think it necessarily is. 
it just happens to be a dynamic I've had with with my wife is uh, the relationship between uh, Dr. McKenna and Joe when they meet him is exactly what I think it would be with me and my wife in the same situation. Whereas I would just accept him on his face value and be like, yeah, it's a nice guy we met and we're going to go out to dinner and we're going to have a great time. And she's like, something's not right here. Something's wrong. He doesn't, you know, he's not doing things the way he should be. Uh, There's people looking at us. What's going on? She will be more quick to just look around and see what's not right about this. Whereas I just accept things on their face value. A typical husband wife relationship or if it just happens to be that mine mirrors what we saw in this movie uh but that really kind of hit home for me and i thought boy that that seems so real well especially the idea that when you're on a vacation that like you're lucky enough to meet this couple that you like connect with and you're able to do fun things with and that happens pretty organically because a vacation is such a compressed time frame anyway but I, I would agree with you. I think my wife would react the same way. She'd be more of the skeptic, whereas I'm like, hey, we're all buddies now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm ready to go on, go on another vacation with these people already. And, right. and she's saying, who the hell are they? <laughs> but but I thought that was also effective for the movie itself, because it, it kind of gave us, like I said, a lot of exposition. You know, they, they told us what the backgrounds of these characters were, and they showed you their relationship, and they started to make you care about hank as their son which is something that also lacked in this in the in the original rather uh so you know there's there's a little bit more uh you know it's weaved together a little better i think in in this in the remake yeah i think there's a room for a third ideal version which is you know a little less colorful more time with hank more time with our a lead villain that's clear and just kind of bring the strengths together yeah, I, I think the other thing that the 1956 version had going for it is, you know, the Lawrences were English. So while they were always on the back foot, they quickly got back on their home turf. The McKinnons are always a stranger in a strange land the entire film. Well, but Joe was a popular art, singing artist in England, so she kind of had some background there. True, true. Uh, yeah, but you are right. I mean, like they are still American. Before. Yeah, they they are still American, and in, in you know, uh, no matter how much you might visit a particular country, you know, your home country is still going to be the place for you. Uh, I loved. I have loved since day one in the remake the whole confusion with Ambrose Chapel, and <laughs> that's that's been like a, a, an inside joke with me and, my, me and one of my buddies for years now. Every once in a while, you know, we'll mention Ambrose Chapel for reasons that we usually have to shoehorn into a conversation but it just comes up fairly often uh and i i just thought it was great especially the scene when he goes to see the the guy named ambrose chapel and just the what it develops into with the father you know running off with the swordfish and stuff going on it's almost like a comedy scene done seriously mm-hmm. Well, that real yep. danger during that, to, to your point, the comedic sequence where if he gets put into prison there, he's trying to find his kid. 
So anything that's taking you away from that end game goal of trying to find the location of your child, like how, how long can you be in prison? What does that do for the kid? You know what? Cause there's that, that danger aspect of it. So it was, you're right. It was funny and sort of slapsticky, but yet didn't take away from the danger, which is a hard piece to put into a film um, mm-hmm. when you're going that route. Cause it was a funny sequence that um, still had danger under as an overtone. Yeah. That's the one sequence where you could leave the script completely alone and put it in that Bill Murray spoof Mm -hmm. and just shoot that same script differently to make it funny. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 100%. Go go ahead, Trey. I was going to say, I also like the way Hitchcock kind of extended um, the suspense uh, with the... um, uh, embassy, you know, now we know who the villains are. Now we know where they are. We suspect where we know Hank is, but it's kind of like a Dr. Doom plot. We can't just go busting in there. Yeah, the, I mean, there's definitely uh, the Hitchcock slow burn through the movie. And what I like about it is it's got the slow burn, but it never it ne- it never like become and you're never aware of the slow burn it's just kind of existing mm-hmm. in the background uh and that's that's one of the things where he was a master at that uh the you one thing you asked before was about Louis Bernard and i looked at imdb and at least the character is referenced as Louis Bernard in both films i don't remember that being a big part of the 34 film though cuz kind of like you i just remember this being the guy who gave him the info i don't remember that being a, a standout but what I was thinking about the 56 version just now, I mentioned uh, the suspense that I liked so much in the 34 version, especially in the Royal Albert Hall. One sequence that was really great in 56, and you're mentioning before, Blaine, about like maybe the perfect third version of this. They got to keep in that footstep sequence from 56, because when he was walking and you heard that like loud echoing matching footsteps and he would stop, then he would start up again and that sequence would match. And it wasn't, I mean, you knew it was coming that there was eventually going to be that point where they didn't match. And you didn't know what that meant. You didn't know what was going on. You just knew that there was this matching footsteps. And it didn't matter where it went. I was glued. I'm like, what is going to happen here? And like I said, the end result didn't matter. It was just like in that moment, he'd captivated me to watch him walking down. And I felt the creep factor with him, which is hard to do when you're taking an older film where, again, like I was mentioning earlier, you have these sequences where clearly they're being filmed at certain points in time. They're being filmed against something. And now you've pulled me back into this is really happening to this guy and he's in danger right now. I don't know what's going to happen. And I love that sequence. It was a great use of sound, a great use of kind of this walking down the street, giving him a sense of being like contained into this area where there's nowhere for him to run at that moment. It's forward or back. And I'm not sure where they're coming from. That was co- it was cool. That yeah, I totally agree with you. And, and you, you know, you, your point calls to mind to me, something I was thinking while I watched the original is there was much less focus back then. And I'm a little bit surprised because we're not too far off the silent films at that point. But there was much more focus on the Foley artists than there was on the score, it seemed. 
you know, a lot of scenes, there's no musical background where there certainly would have been in the more modern movies. Uh, and you you really hear every little thing that's going on, and, you know, the rustling of material and, and footsteps and people, you know, handling papers or whatever's going on you you know you're really hearing everything that's going on and it it is somewhat immersive and it is a, a trait of older movies that has been somewhat lost over the years because of the stylistic changes and because of movie scores and you know movie scores are great <laughs> you know they really do enhance the movies but they're maybe should be a little bit more balancing of that and a little bit more focus on just the stuff that makes you feel like you're in the room with people. And you definitely have more of that in the older movies. And I do find, and I, I feel bad about this to some extent. I, I feel guilty to some extent because I know, you know, like Blaine and I did uh, the general years ago and, and a couple of other, you know, older movies and Trey has been on with me uh, with Blaine and for a couple of older movies. And I've, championed the idea that if you're a film buff you should want to watch older movies uh and you should you know get appreciation out of them and i almost feel guilty sitting here and, and liking the 56 version so much more uh because i feel like i'm being a a, a modernist snob to some extent because uh, i usually try to embrace the older movies and i think the problem with this one is that i saw the more modern one first mm-hmm I think if I had seen the original earlier, you know, it, it, I probably would have embraced it even more than I did. We're also looking at one of the rare cases where a filmmaker remakes his own film. Yeah, yeah. Right. That was a lot more common in the 1900s because they didn't necessarily keep them. Right. Great Train Robbery from 1903 was a huge hit. They needed more copies, so they had to go film it again because they didn't have any way to make more copies of the original. But that doesn't happen nearly as often. So when you are looking at a very talented filmmaker who is crafting a remake. I think the main difference is that with the remake, he was given more time because the expectations for the duration of the film in 1950s America versus 1930s Britain were different. Most of his British films are in that hour to 90 minute range. The he's, other element is I'm that sorry. you're the biggest star they had in the original was Peter Lorre playing the villain as opposed to the remake where it was Jimmy Stewart playing the hero. So I think that's why the story shifted more away from the villains and towards the heroes is because that's your star. So that's who you write to. As, as I was watching this for the purposes of talking today, as opposed to just watching the movie, because I enjoy it. Uh, I was kind of really a little bit in awe of Jimmy Stewart and his acting because he really just played I, th I think he's his he's famous for kind of playing the everyman and and just being somebody who you could relate to, but it, in this movie he he really wasn't the everyman. I mean he was a a well known you know well respected well established doctor who's married to a famous singer singer. You know he he wasn't everyman. He you know he he was mm -hmm. kind of a little bit you know uh, out of the ordinary. He wasn't famous, but he was you know, not average by any stretch, but then he's put into the situation again, you know, you, you, you know, where, where he becomes one of us, you know, he becomes a regular guy because none of those things are going to help him to get through this. Uh, and, and I just, you know, I was watching him act and I just thought, you know, he really just does. It, it just comes off of him so naturally when he, when he gives his lines that it just seems right. Uh, 
I'm I don't know how old he was when this was made, and I'm curious because they start talking about having another child and all of that, and and I'm you know. Uh, we were talking earlier off the record about, uh, you know, off the recording about, you know, when we had our kids and all of that stuff. But if you're going into the 1950s, I think it was much more common to have all your kids when you were in your 20s. Uh, and, and you know, if you if you if you had a kid at 30, 30 years old, you know, you were like, oh, it's older. I, I even remember my mom telling me. You know, I was I I was she was 31 when I was born and she was like, oh, I enjoyed you so much more because I was older when you were born. <laughs> and it's like 31. You know, it's it's just not the same. And if you look at it through the time, you know, through that time lens, I mean, I'm guessing Jimmy Stewart was in his 40s at this point, which I would think it was a little bit more uncommon for the for that to occur. But it just still seemed natural for him. He just yeah, he- came off so well. Yeah, he was 48 and Doris Day was 46. And certainly a, a woman having a child at 46 in 19, in the 1950s is not something you'd expect to happen. You know, I, I, I even remember as a kid for me, you know, they talk about somebody who was 40 and had a kid, you know, a woman, not a, not a man, because we're talking just about bio, biology here, nothing else. But it's, you know, it was like, you know, oh, she's older. We got to do all of this stuff. We got to watch. We got to make sure that everything's safe. She's got to go for more appointments. So it would not be common for a 46 year old woman to be sitting and saying we should have more children. And yet it comes off OK in the movie. <laughs> I, yeah. I don't know. I don't know if that's Part- the modern sensibilities rubbing off on it or or what, but it just you know it it they I I really kind of felt the two of them acted seamlessly and you know really carried the movie well. Yeah, and I think a lot of it is that they could both pass for younger when they were doing this, and I was kind of surprised looking up and finding out that Doris Day was forty six because I I would have guessed that they were more like ten years apart than two, frankly, based on how she, they looked. She certainly looked like she was in her thirties. Yeah, so between looking younger and having a fairly young child as it is, it just helps make it more plausible that they're still looking for one. So I think this is a case where the characters they're playing are younger than the performers. I think the the difference is while she looked easily 10 years younger than she was, I think he looked kind of around his age. (laughs) So like you said, it, it almost looked like there was a bigger age gap between them. Which, you know, again, just talking biology, nothing other than that, uh, you know, men can have children older than women can, you know, biologically. So that's not as much of an issue. I think Jimmy Doohan was in his 80s when he fathered his last child. So or uh, Tony Randall was having kids well into deep into his 70s. Yes. But when you're getting to the case where, yeah, your youngest child is born when your oldest child is a grandparent. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good point. <laughs> I, what I've always appreciated by about uh, Jimmy Stewart and his performances is that well, while he's one of those act- actors that you know impressionists and comedians could make a caricature out of based off of like his Tonight Show appearances and whatnot, <clears throat> his performances never became those self parodies. You know. I think we can all think of actors who, um, especially later in their careers, feel like they're acting like what people expect them to be versus, you know, um, playing the role. You know, I can think of some Al Pacino roles from the past, you know, 10, 15 years where Al Pacino is playing the public perception of Al Pacino and less playing the role. Uh, Jimmy Stewart never fell into that. 
and and if you see enough Jimmy Stewart movies, while he does have kind of the Jimmy Stewart characteristics that you kind of accept him for, uh, he do, he did have some movies where he played off type, and you know he showed that he could handle it. And and a lot of times when you have that situation, uh, playing off type almost plays with the way you think they're going to be and then you find out they're different and it's like oh my god and it's can you accept them in the different role uh i'm having a tough time thinking of a jimmy stewart example i'm thinking in my mind henry fonda in once upon a time in the west uh you know going off type and 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 you know henry fonda was a very similar type actor to jimmy stewart i'll i'll spoil an 80 year plus film um i watched after the thin man uh, last night and he's kind of the surprise killer in it and becomes completely unhinged in like the last 10, 15 minutes of the movie. And that is not the Jimmy Stewart you normally get. Yeah. And, and I think uh, as we do some more Hitchcock movies, we're going to see a little bit of a different Jimmy Stewart in uh, not so much in real window. I think we're going to see a similar Jimmy Stewart in real window, mm-hmm. but I think we see, I think we see a very different Jimmy Stewart in rope. Not a villainous yes. Jimmy Stewart, but a very different Jimmy Stewart. So, you know, we will be able to compare a little bit. Um, so, yeah, all, all the ones that they held back. Well, uh, there's a few things that struck me on this one. You, you mentioned earlier about, um, like, not championing the, championing the older film. We're in 2023, and we're talking about a 1934 and a 1956 film. Mm-hmm. You're championing older film. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I am, but I'm, but I'm burying the I'm older, older film. More to defend the nature of the conversation, because I think where I'm really going with this, though, we're talking about remakes, purposeful remakes, in an era where remake has kind of got a negative connotation on it at times as being kind of a lazy way to approach filmmaking and things like that. This is the opposite of that. I mean, we're talking about a creator here, an artist, who made the decision to remake one of his films because he wasn't satisfied with the original version and really went out of his way to craft a version with some very strong differences where we can sit here and talk about preference between the original version and the later version because of the distinct differences between the two, which is really fun. I mean, to be able to have the debate and be able to pick a favorite if, you know, if you have one out of the two, um, at a, which is interesting. And the other piece I just wanted, to, which is kind of a little aside, I was reading that this was Peter Lorre's second English language film, um, which that's incredible because uh, Peter Lorre has such a presence and to be able, I'm always fascinated by that because, um, sure, I took I took Spanish when I was in high school for two years and I took Latin for two years. I'm not able to speak um, complete sentences in either of them now, much less do an entire film. I'm always fascinated when you see acting talent who is able to do multi-language films and be able to really deliver a performance because you're not just being able to recite lines you are delivering a performance, you're becoming a character and um, really delivering emotion. And boy, he did a, I mean, we're all talking about how he was the standout in that, in that movie. And you need to be that presence, uh, impressive when it's only your second English language movie. I think M was the first one from what I was reading. Uh, M was German language. Oh, I'm sorry. It's, it's fantastic. It was actually the first German talkie, 1931, directed by Fritz Long, 
first film noir. I highly recommend it. This is mm-hmm. uh, the the basic plot of M is that uh, Peter Lorre plays a child killer because killer is the only adjective they were allowed to use. They couldn't go as far as they wanted to, but it's implied what he's doing to these children before he kills them. And the police who are not well respected in 1930s Germany have no leads. So they're just cracking down on all crime in general. And the organized crime bosses say, we don't like this scumbag any more than anyone else. So let's take care of him. Let's not leave him up to the public persona where he's going to get a lawyer and get off easy. Let's deal with this monster the way he should be dealt with. M is the only movie I've ever seen where the suspense is not, will the police get there in time? It's, do I want the police to get there in time or do I want the crime bosses to deal with this guy? Mm. I've never seen that, but it sounds fascinating. Highly we recommend have to, we may have the Criterion Collection film. version. Yeah. Do we know what his first English language film was? Um, not off the top of my head, it. but I could dig. I I think this was it. Uh, I, you know, I was reading that he kind of had to learn his lines phonetically for this. Yeah. I was just I was just stunned by that. I mean, it was it really stood out for me because um, he's such a talent. My first exposure to him was Maltese Falcon, where obviously he's also similarly such a standout of the film, um, such a draw. And uh, I really was pleasantly surprised to see him in this and get a chance to really enjoy his performance because that's it just it, he was really captivating. You know, what's kind of cool is Sean and Blaine, you're both right. uh it says here and i'm going with wikipedia so you always got to question the reality of it but uh in the second paragraph of peter laurie's description says of jewish descent laurie left germany after adolf hitler and the nazi party came into power his second english language film following the multiple language version of m was alfred hitchcock's the man who knew too much so you're both right. It was M was his first English language film, but it was also a foreign language film at the same time. Okay, so it was probably like um, some of the early Laurel and Hardys to where you would basically shoot the film multiple times and speak the script in multiple languages. That's impressive. Yeah, and there's 12 films in between M and The Man Who Knew Too Much. Most of which, as I was going through them, they didn't look like they were English. But yeah, he he wouldn't have had a lot to speak in M because we don't actually hear him use sentences, I think, until the last five or ten minutes. Most of the time, he just keeps whistling the same song. So you know, we, we just saw over here, and I'm sure a lot of the audience would not be seeing this, but we, we my wife and I watched uh, Downton Abbey, uh, and they have two movies that followed the series and we just last week watched the second movie and it's fascinating and i'm sure everybody's sitting here saying what the hell are you talking about now now before but uh it's fascinating because part of the plot of that movie is that they're filming a movie at the uh mansion where the where the family lives and it is in the era where uh the jazz singer just came out and they realized that that silent films are you know, going away and they actually have the film canceled on them while they're filming it. But to, uh, to make it work, they decide to turn it into a talkie. 
So they have to go in and take these scenes where they, you know, they mimed their words and they have to, you know, redub in the actual language. And it's kind of fascinating to see it. I have no idea if there's any reality to to that being the way anything, any particular movie was done back then. But just to see it as a concept that had to be pushed where, you know, we're filming this as a silent film and now we have to convert it into a talking film. Uh, it was really, really interesting to watch from that perspective. Uh, and one of the act, well, the lead actress in the movie, in you know, the, the movie within the movie uh, has this, uh, what you call it, a, you know, a, 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 her accent just doesn't fit. So they have one of the other women actually dubbing her dialogue. And then when they're filming later scenes that they hadn't filmed yet with dialogue in them, she has to mime the words while the other woman is speaking into the microphone. So it's, it's kind of cool to see. So uh, it sounds like the Downton Abbey's second movie just basically stole the plot from Singing in the Rain. Uh, well, in its own way, but Singing in the Rain is, <laughs> is very, very different from that perspective. But yeah, that's another movie that, you know, and we covered it here. Uh, that is another movie that, uh, you know, deals with the transition from silent to talkies uh, and, and does so in an interesting kind of more funny way uh, than, than Downton Abbey did. But yeah, it, there, there is, there are similarities there. Uh, so focusing on the movies a little bit more, like I said, I kind of think I would have liked the first even more than I did. And I did like it, but I think I would have liked it even more if I, than I did if I had just seen it cleanly without having seen the remake uh but it definitely had its moments in there uh i really enjoyed the scene with the dentist when when you know he had to, he had to kind of overpower the guy and gas him and then pretend to be the dentist himself uh that felt like a very it felt like a prototype hitchcock scene that we were going to see things like that over the years many more times maybe done a little bit more elegantly but just really there, there was a tension to that whole scene and and that one in particular stood out to me with what i was saying earlier that the lack of uh any type of real score going in the background added to the tension in that scene as opposed to taking away uh, so there were definitely a lot of scenes in that movie that i think you know, show the talent that Hitchcock had, or, you know, and, and, you know, he doesn't have to take a back seat on those earlier versions. As far as quality goes, I think a lot more of the backseat are twofold. One, the technology of the time. So the movie just looks and feels a little bit more uh, rudimentary, uh, but also just, you know, the, the filmmaking style of the time, he hadn't totally broken out of that. And I don't think the popular culture at the time would allow him to totally break out of it or i think he would have right from the start uh you know i think they you know they they wanted a 75 minute movie a two-hour movie was you know you, you got to be crazy to make a two-hour movie uh so you know they had to kind of cram things in a little bit well well and pander to the audience taste a little bit more you know um the it had the um, ending has a little bit of a pulpy feel to it because, you know, where's Peter Laurie's hideout? It's in the back of a sun worshiping cult's church. <laughs> you know, where did that come from all of a sudden? He, he walked he walked into the set of Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom somehow. Exactly. Um, and you know, I I think the I think the shootout um at the end of the thirty four 
um, original may have been more unique at that time than it would have been if you did it in 56. And, I, uh, you know, I'm willing to bet that's part of why um, Hitchcock broke away from it. The 1950s Hitchcock is not going to end a film with a gunfight. And the villains were interesting between the two because you're dealing with a cult in the first version and then a very politically motivated mm-hmm. ver, um, group in the in the second one. Um, it's funny, we were talking about Peter Lorre's performance, which was stellar, but it was I think it was Nurse Agnes was the name of the character, the Peter Lorre's mm-hmm. right-hand character. When she died, it was really interesting because you could see on her face, talk about great acting, how important the cause was to her. So we're dealing with this cult-like cause, and she's pulling the gun on the assassin, pushing him to continue on, even though his focus was escape. And again, we had the assassin who was still present at that point in time, which is very different than what happened in 56, where the assassin was no more at that point in time. And I liked the distinction between the two films. I mean, it was very, very different motivations as far as what the assassination was about and ultimately where that end result went. Um, But uh, Nurse Agnes was a very interesting character because um, that cause has to really drive what was going on in 34 for it to be a distinctly different film. You you know, we we talk about you know, that weird third blending that yeah. you know was never made. N- Nurse Agnes would totally have killed Hank. She mm-hmm. would have totally killed Hank. Mm. Yeah, as opposed to in the 56 where yeah. she was actually part of the reason that, that Hank got saved. You know, she 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 had a, a level of guilt for it. And I, I just, I think it's worth emphasizing kind of a point that Blaine brought up earlier. It's that you know, in in 1934, to make the woman the most capable person in the movie is it's it was a gutsy move by Hitchcock. But when you watch that scene, you know, you see the professional sharpshooter there and he's like, I, I just can't do it. And she's like, hey, hold my beer. I got this. <laughs> Keep in mind that um, one of the issues that they had trying to make the 30s version was that he almost wasn't allowed to shoot that scene because the British government did not like the idea of portraying the British police with guns. They were famously reluctant to deploy the guns. They were not going to have it on them. They were not supposed to have guns in that scene at all. That sequence was based on a true story where the police ended up calling in the military. And it was the military that had the guns for the shootout. And if this movie had been 77 minutes long, they might have done that. Yeah, and that's what they wanted to do. But it was just (laughs) he didn't want to spend the time on that. So he just he did have the vehicles show up and bring the guns. But again, they were not experienced and the wife was, you know, she was professionally competing as a skeet shooter. So yeah, I just they, like they that. They don't show the officer as being incompetent. They show him as being concerned that he doesn't want to take a chance on, on hitting an innocent person. So yeah, it was a difficult shot. He's like, uh, this, this is a risk I'm not willing to take, but she knew her skill set well enough to know. Yeah. If I take the shot, the boy is not at risk. And she doesn't no, explain it. Like you said, she just grabs the gun and says, okay. Well, they, they, you know, they gave you Chekhov's gun at the beginning of the, the movie and they expected you to be intelligent enough to put those two pieces together, which really wasn't that difficult to put together. Uh, but in a more modern movie, you know, maybe you would have had the husband going over and saying, Hey, you're a sharpshooter. Why don't you take the gun and take a shot at it? <laughs> you know, but uh, you know, that, that is something where, where the, you know, 
trusting the intelligence of the audience is, is a plus. I, I think if they if they had even one word of dialogue in that about why what she was doing, I think it would have spoiled it a bit. What did you think of the score in the 56 version? It was what a score is supposed to be in the sense that it did not stand out. But it when I tried to listen for it, because it was always a topic of conversation, it fit. So it's one of those things that's guiding it. But a, as you've mentioned before, a great score should be almost subliminal. So I haven't tried to listen to it out of the film, but in the film it works. It never distracts, but it does support. I didn't listen to it outside of the film, but I did try to pay attention to it during the film. And in his own way, Bernard Herrmann was kind of the uh, John Williams of his day. Uh, and I think he did a I thought I thought he did a really good job and exactly what you just said, Blaine. He didn't make it stand out over much. Uh, he, he just kind of, you know, gave us the beats that we needed. And I like the fact that he left the music at the end as it is because they offered to him if he wanted to write his own mm -hmm. uh, orchestral the, you know, thing for the, for the uh, assassination attempt uh, that he could, but he said, no, this is so perfect. We're going to, you know, we're going to keep this. And then he kind of played with that. I thought he played with that a little bit musically throughout the movie. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I thought it was very, very effective. I, I think Bernard Herrmann is, is, you know, probably uh, underappreciated in this day, but he was, you know, or underknown in this day, mm -hmm. but back in the 1950s, I think he was well known. Uh, my version of uh, North by Northwest has a uh, commentary track by Bernard Herman, which is I, I think it's kind of interesting that you would have the, uh, you know, the, the film scorer actually do the commentary track. But uh, that that shows you to some extent how much he was respected back in that in those days. Yeah, well, I think has come up a lot when we're going through Oscar nominations from this era. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, he was he, he was he was the Edith head of, uh, of of scoring films. Or again, like you said, compared to John Williams, who's up to fifty three nominations now at the time of this recording. Yeah, you know, I, I would be curious just to look at the list of John Williams nominations and see how many times he competed against himself. He he already has a couple and um, up to where we've recorded. Yeah, I I think at one point. He was actually nominated three times in one year. Yeah, it's 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 amazing. And still ends up winning, so he hadn't even split the vote that much. So what what else can we say about these? Any any uh, any other thoughts that came to mind as you were watching them? Um, you know, I'll, I'll just reiterate what we said earlier. I I think what makes the nineteen 56 film um uh maybe resonate more with um some viewers is you know to your earlier point paul uh ben and joe mckenna are not average people but they're put in a situation to where um none of their advantages are really advantages for them and when you take out the fantastical elements like um, uh, the sun cult, uh, objectively, this could happen to somebody. It, it's like that. It's the vacation nightmare. 
No, absolutely. I think the only area, just to kind of revisit that point one more time, the only area where it seems like their standing in life gives them an advantage is at the end of the movie when he says, mm-hmm. you know, you get up and sing K Sarah Sarah, and I'm going to go search for, for Hank while you, you know, while you keep everybody else occupied. And I think that's the only point where they really make that an issue. Uh, but otherwise, you know, they're, they're just the same as any of us who were on vacation and this kind of thing happened. Yeah, I was going to say that the Doris Day's character with her singing background was that, partly with the distraction. And partly, as you mentioned earlier, she was the one that was skeptical of the spy. But because of her fame, right, she also noticed the other couple had been watching them. But when they say, oh, you're famous, right? Well, that gives sufficient explanation for why they were being watched and they're, they let their guards down. Yeah, good so point. So both the strength and the vulnerability, because if she wasn't that famous, would she have let that other couple get close enough and ask them to take care of her of their, their son? Very good point. Okay. I, I agree totally. So I guess, on you know, but I just uh, I'm ready to call for opinions on where we rank these two. But uh, before we do that, I just want to see if anybody had any other points that we missed on this. Okay, I think we're ready to go. Uh, doesn't matter to me. Anybody want to go first? You know what? Let's do this this way. Let's all give our rankings for 1934, and then we'll give our rankings for 1956 rather than double up. And I'll I'll start us for 34. Uh, once again, I think this is another movie where you do need to have an open mind for op- older movies. I think certain people don't like black and white in general. Certain people don't like the style of movie making in of that era in general. And I think if you're one of those those people, it's probably best that you don't be be the person in this one, uh, watching this one. But if you are either tolerant of that or if you're a fan of filmmaking and want to see some of the things from from then, uh, I do think it's one of these movies that you'll put on for that purpose. And then you will kind of be pulled into it a little bit and you're going to get pulled into the story. You're not going to just while you may sit down with the open mind, that open mind is going to just kind of get in, you know, get engrossed in the movie itself and the plot. And I think it's really well done overall, you know, with the limitations of the time and the limitations being, you know, filmmaking limitations, editing limitations and the fact that he couldn't make a longer movie and have it be commercially uh, viable. So if you take all of that into account, I think it is probably a very, very high Jaws 3. And if you really like old movies, it's probably a Jaws 2. For me, this one was a Jaws 2. And the main reason for that is the atmosphere. Um, I really loved the handling of black and white. It's not the first Hitchcock film that I'd recommend in black and white for somebody to see. This wouldn't be your starting point. But I do think there's a validity to watching it. I think that it's a great suspense film. Um, I don't make it a Jaws one because it's not going to be one where I'm like, I've got to watch this 50 times. But I will watch it again because I, I really enjoyed the film. So it's it's up on that list. Um, there's a lot to like about some of the choices that were made in 34 that weren't made in 56 as far as uh, atmosphere and suspense and mood. Um, I think the scene in the Albert Hall still stands out for me as as an amazing way to use music, to be able to use character reaction and to build a long draw of suspense. Like I was actually waiting for that gunshot because we know it was coming, but what that was going to look like and what her ultimate reaction was going to be. 
because um, I'd seen that one before. I didn't see the 56 version first. I saw the 34 version first. So it's it's definitely worth um, seeing, and it's it should be on your list if uh, if you're a fan. And, and to the point of Paul, don't dismiss it because it's black and white. I actually think the film benefits from being in black and white. Yeah, I, I would agree with everything Sean just said. I, I also put this as um, Jaws 2. It's not it's not the best Hitchcock black and white. It's not even the best Hitchcock black and white um, of the 30s, but there's just something about the luridness and the pulpiness of it um, that really appealed to me. And I'm also in the Jaws 2 camp, I think. The strength of Peter Lorre's performance and the fact that, in this case, it was the mother or the wife with the expertise to save the day while the, the father was captured, which was so unusual for 1934. For me, that that gives it a boost. I mean, realistically, we're all pretty much in Jaws 2 on this one. I'm giving it a little bit of a discount just based on age, which I probably shouldn't be an ageist on films, but I, you know, I... I think there are people who are and I just kind of try and target myself to to everybody who, who's going to be interested now with the 1956 version uh my gut feeling is while this is one of my favorite Hitchcock movies it's still going to be there's still several that rank higher than it uh and that almost became my incentive to say, well, I got to give it a Jaws too. It's something that I've enjoyed watching multiple times over the years. Uh, but Hitchcock has made movies that I think are better. Uh, but then when I remove myself from that way of thinking, then I'm not supposed to be comparing it to other Hitchcock films and ranking them that, you know, somehow it's got to rank from Jaws to Jaws 4. No. <laughs> that I think that's the wrong way of looking at it. I'm going to look at this movie in a vacuum, and you know what? I think it's nearly a perfect movie, and I'm going to give it a Jaws ranking. It's interesting on this one. I, I, so much of this is driven by my experience of watching both of them together, because I, I watched 34, and then I ended up watching 56 uh, about a week later, and I'm trying to separate them. And it's really hard to do that. And the reason why I'm noting that is I think for anybody listening to this, if you haven't seen both versions of this film, do yourself a favor and do that. Um, it's we're in an era where remakes are very much dismissed at times. And these are two films that there's some very distinct, strong differences between the two and some choices that were made between the two versions that you've really got to see. This 56 version, I loved the expansion of the story. There was characters that I cared about more. Even in the case we referenced the child, we referenced uh, Louis Bernard, we referenced the family relationship. Those are things that benefited from the expanded storytelling in the 56 version, the fact that they had more time to flesh out some things. So if I think from a story standpoint, there's character, I, I would say from a character standpoint, I think there's some suspense things that I like better in 34, but from a character development standpoint, I thought 56 really rocked it. And um, I'm, I'm gonna go a high jaws too on this one, but I'm gonna put a caveat on there that I really feel my overall experience with both films was really driven by the fact that I got to see both films. And I, I, I'm trying to separate them, and I've got to, I've got to admit, I'm struggling with it because it was such a great experience watching both. Please do it if you have not, because um, you're missing out on something if you haven't seen both versions of this film. 
I'm in a weird place with the 56 film. You know, I, Paul was right. I cannot think of a single flaw with the 56 version. And yet when we discussed doing this show, my reaction was, ooh, going to watch the Peter Laurie one again. And, oh, yeah, and we'll all, and I'll also watch the one with Doris Day. So I, I, I have to put it in Jaw 2 because – Jaws 2 because it doesn't have that same rewatchability for me as the 1934 does. And objectively, it's a better film. Mm. Interesting. Okay. And I'm Jaws 2 as well. I do have a slight preference for the 1934 version, but it's the gap between them is not wide enough in my mind to justify giving them two different ratings. They are both rewatchable. They are both strong. If we talk about that third version where we, we sort of build together the strongest elements of both, then we could push it to Jaws in, in a third version. But they're there. And I totally back Sean here where both have value and it's worth checking them out and comparing them. Because how many opportunities do film nerds have to see two versions not just you know two different cuts by the same director like blade runner but a straight up remake by that same filmmaker who knows what he's doing and was already competent when he made the first one he was just better when he did the second so would check those out uh, justwatch.com says the man who knew too much is not streaming bundled anywhere so it's not with netflix or anything like that but you can rent it from virtually every digital store so Apple, Google Play, iOS, it's on all of those. And as you said, the 1934 version has fallen into public domain. So It is on HBO Max. That's where I watched it. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's not listed on my website, but that might also know I'm in Canada, so it's not showing the services that are not available in Canada. And I have a DVD so. of the uh, 56, so that's where I watched it for this. <laughs> but uh, Yeah, I've got mine in the uh, the Hitchcock Masterpiece Collection kicking myself for not holding out for the ultimate collection that I didn't know was coming, which has all of the, you know, I think it's like 16 of his major films, but the ultimate collection also adds all of the episodes of Alfred Hitchcock presents in the Alfred Hitchcock hour that he actually directed. Hmm. Oh, that's pretty cool. I think just before we call it into this, I, I, you know, one of the points I wanted to talk about a little bit that we didn't get to is just the idea of remaking your own movie. Um, you know, I've, I've long gone with, and I even don't even know who, you know, gave me this standard, but I've gone with the standard that to make a remake of a movie, it, it needs to be one of two things. It needs to either be a really good idea that was not realized correctly. And that doesn't happen very often because uh, usually, you know, that's not as commercial. If it wasn't realized correctly the first time, it's not it's going to automatically have some bad thoughts about it. The other is where the technology of the day didn't allow you to make the movie that you wanted to. And that would be maybe say like a King Kong, which is like one of the all time greatest movies, but then they remade it because they had the sophisticated special effects that would allow them to remake it. Uh, you can compare, you can take that as kind of like my theory for remakes and then add to that the uh, auteur who thinks that, you know, he didn't quite get, make the movie he wanted to make. And, uh, yeah, I'm looking right at you, George Lucas and, and your, uh, special editions. Uh, and I think there's the risk of putting 
Hitchcock into that category for this that, you know, well, he, you know, he, he just wanted to redo it because he wasn't happy with the way it came out the first time around. But I also think that that's an element of why he wanted to do it. But I think he added a little bit of uh, just quality to it by doing what Sean described to us earlier about how uh, he he you know, got a screenwriting partner who had not seen the original, who had not read the script and said, here's the ideas. You take this and you give you come back to me with what you know, what you put together. And I think it allowed him to make a movie that, as I mentioned early on, uh, there's some people who don't even really consider it a remake because it's, you know, got enough different elements in it. Uh, so I think that that added to his ability to to make the movie that I prefer uh you know and and we went through why and all of that but uh i think it becomes an exception to the remake rule that i gave or the george lucas rule that i gave uh and and i appreciate can appreciate it in that way i think that's you know that yeah. that's the best way to, to to describe it as far as i'm concerned yeah i also think that there's a one of the biggest differences between what hitchcock did and what lucas did Lucas didn't go out with cameras and film anything new. He didn't recast. He didn't rewrite. What he did was more of, um, it's more like uh, what Tony Scott did with, or, sorry, it wasn't Tony. I don't know why I said that. Ridley Scott did with Blade Runner, where he took the existing footage and assembled it in a different way. So yeah, George Lucas changed the CGI, but this remake you don't have Jimmy Stewart's head suddenly teleporting four inches to the left so that someone else can shoot first. Right? It doesn't have the failings. He, when he decided to remake it, he was starting from scratch and made a new film with similar elements. He wasn't altering an existing one. So I think that that definitely sets Hitchcock apart from Lucas or Scott in that regard. Is there a film any of you would like a director to revisit and remake like this? I was going to hold some of this conversation until after we were done recording and talking okay. about what's happening next, because this is not the only one of Hitchcock's films that Hitchcock remade. It's just the only one he remade as a film. He also took one of his silent films and remade it as a radio play, which was the original pilot for suspense one of the longest running radio shows ever. Um, there's also in the first season of Alfred Hitchcock presents um, a shorter version of the lady vanishes. Mm -hmm. I found myself just, I mean, I know this is a little bit of a non sequitur, but I found myself DVRing Alfred Hitchcock presents, which I don't even remember what channel was showing it. Uh, but every night I, I would, uh, sit down and watch another episode of it until I watch the entire series. And uh, that was actually a really fun experience. Uh, I, I had seen a couple, you know, a handful of the episodes as a young kid. Uh, but this series was a lot of fun because of just some of the storylines, the, the story plots that they went with, and they were all self-contained and, you know, it was a, an anthology show, but, also, the quality of some of the actors that were on the show was, you know, really something else. Right. So any, anybody who has a chance to watch, you know, to revisit that series, I would recommend that. Yeah, I've got the first six seasons on DVD. Unfortunately, I couldn't get seven 
of Hitchcock Presents or the three seasons of Alfred Hitchcock Hour, because those are released through Amazon.com Manufacture On Demand, which does not ship outside the U.S. Okay, we're all going to go over to Blaine's house to watch the first six seasons, though. <laughs> it's it's interesting in this conversation, we talk about the fact that um, Hitchcock, in particular, did a lot of, um, not a lot of, but I mean, a decent amount of remakes. Um it's also in an era where we're very used to, we talked about films being vaulted a little bit earlier, and we're in an era where, even in this conversation organically, we're talking about how easy it is, if it's not streaming, the pain in the neck now is being going to some form of outlet to buy it. I mean, this stuff is obtainable now. There's very little that we can't get. I mean, there are certain things, but there's very little that we can't get, and usually if we can get it, we can also get remastered versions of it, which um, is very different. In the eras we're referencing, there was reasons to revisit that storytelling, to uh, put it out in different media because of the fact that there wasn't that immediate access. Um, maybe it would get re-released in the theaters, um, but that wasn't always commonplace. It was you were happened to be able to have seen it in the theater, maybe in one of its re-releases, and not then radio is a viable source. TV is a viable source to then do a you know a singleton episode or something like that where you're retelling a story. Um, we are in such a cool era where now we have the opportunity to be able to like as you're sitting here saying, well, there's a radio play version of one of these. I'm like, well, I kind of want to listen to that now <laughs> and and know that the odds are pretty good. I'm going to be able to find that somewhere and be able to enjoy it, um, which we're we're lucky. You know, as far as having that kind of accessibility now where it's not like, oh, geez, you're lucky you were able to listen to that. And I can't <laughs> I can't imagine what that was like. Uh, I remember. Well, I remember growing up with that where it was something was in the theater and you'd go and see it five or six times because you knew that was your one shot. <laughs> yeah. Otherwise, you got to wait, you know, years until it's going to show up on network TV and, a, and then you're going to watch it with commercials and all of that. So, yeah. you know, it's. It's a common uh, dis point of discussion that we've had uh, in the past of talking about, you know, the way things were in the old days. And, you know, I, I, you know, you, I turn into the get off my lawn old man uh, saying, oh, it was better then. You know, it, it wasn't better. We have the ability to watch things at home now. We have the ability to watch them when we want to. We have the ability to watch them with, you know, terrific sound and, and big screens and all of that. This is better. but because of the limitations of the day when we were growing up, we had a greater appreciation for when we could watch these things. And I think it's lent itself to this love of movies that we have now that I don't know if I would have it the same way if I had grown up in this era. So I'm not going to say it's better, but I'm going to say it's better for me. <laughs> so I guess that's going to do it for... The man who knew TWO much. Uh, and uh, thanks, guys, for coming on. But before we walk away, why don't you tell them about your other show? Uh, well, Trey and I do a show together that's 99 Years 100 Films, where we are going through every movie that's ever won Best Picture at the Academy Awards. Um, so we are at least... In our releases, we will be wrapping up the 60s in 2023 here and getting into the 1970s. The next one we have to record is the first film from 1980. And going from there, 
Um, I also do a show called Bedtime in the Public Domain, where I take stories that are in the public domain and just read them, which I mentioned because I'll be doing The Man Who Knew Too Much this August. Oh, cool. That's probably going to be worth checking out. Uh, and for what it's worth, uh, as the 1970s roll by, I'm on two of them. So that makes me happy. Yep. Uh, but, you know, our recording and release schedules are different. So that's why we already know those are <laughs> those are coming. Mm -hmm. Anyway, thanks again for everybody uh, coming on and thank you, everybody, for listening. And we'll catch you next time. Bye bye. When I was just a little girl my mother, what will I be? Will I be pretty? Will I be rich? Here's what she said to me. When I grew up and fell in love, I asked my sweetheart, what lies ahead? Will we have rainbows day after day? Here's what my sweetheart said. Que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be. The future's not ours to see. Que sera. What will be, will be Now I have children of my own They ask their mother, what will I be? Will I be handsome? Will I be rich? I tell them tenderly Será?